Gaming on the Frontier. This is Bruce. This is Trav. And this is Jonathan. Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier, your podcast of exploring strange new worlds that have nothing to do with Star Trek. Wait a minute. There, that's a thing? Welcome to Gaming on the Frontier. This week we are talking about the perfect space game. Now, of course, as soon as I say that, we have to do divisions and stuff like that. And we will talk about that, but because the, you know, the perfect, you know, the perfect game may be three different games, four different games because of the focus of whatever your game is. And we're going to be talking tabletop. We're going to be talking about, you know, games themselves that are, uh, well, they aren't role-playing games. And also we're going to be talking about video games because when you talk about space games, there's been a quite a bit of uh, uh, what do they call that when all the things come together? Synchronicity. No, but that's but but nice try. Thanks for playing. There <laughs> uh, a similitude? No, no. It's, it's like they said where your phone basically is is your television. It's your your recorder. It's your phone. It's your you know internet. Everything becomes like one thing. So uh, right now, um, you know the. the uh, computer games have really blossomed because uh, it used to be that when you played a computer game, you knew what you were playing. It was probably going to be a shoot 'em up You know, you're going to get on there, they're going to throw waves of, of, of invaders or uh, 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 weird bug-like alien creatures swooping around and you'd be shooting the hell out of them either from your spaceship or from your ground station. And... Uh, that's that was what space games were like, or you were in an asteroid field, or something. It was very simple. There was very very obvious parameters about what you were doing, and it and it grew from there. Uh, it uh, uh, you, you end up with uh, later on like Quanon Masters and uh, or was it Ur Masters? I can't remember. Uh, and there were other games where you started actually exploring you know, space. And one of the very earliest space games that was more than just a shoot-em-up, uh, a shooter, was a game called Universe that I played on my Atari computer. And it required two disks, a two-disk drive, in order to play it effectively because there was so much disk swapping going otherwise that it was ridiculous. That doesn't include the third store-your-game <laughs> store disk. Because you had to have another one to, you know, so that between the between uh, booting up the game, and uh, so that and but that game was great, and it had a lot of the features that are so uh, predominant in um, a lot of the games today. So uh, now, you know, when you talk about these kinds of games, uh, there a lot of times not everybody has millions of dollars, okay, to make a game, and so. 
We're talking about, you know, so a lot of people, they say, okay, we're going to focus on this. And this is what we're going to do, and we're going to do it well. Okay, so you have games like um, uh, where you, you your, your, spa your spaceship crash lands in the water, and you're underwater. And you spend the entire time basically trying to do some crafting and get your ship working or get to the point where you can do some exploring and not die from that strange shark-like creature that's roaming around just outside of the shallow waters around your spaceship. Until finally at the end, you actually do some real exploring, run into some aliens or some alien artifacts and maybe get off the world. So... The person who did that, they, you know, they, it was a 3D, I mean, full environment, you know, where you could look around, uh, but, you know, it's it's definitely was was much more limited in scope than some of the other games, um, and and it and it, you know, and some people would say that's not a space game, that's a that's a survival game. It just, you know, you, it just has the conceit that you landed on this world with some stuff, you know. But I, I don't say that. I, I don't make the rules like that. But, um, but I think that a space game. So let's talk about, you know, uh, what you know, some of the things you think have to be. You know, what makes a space game a space game? Okay. Jonathan, go with the obvious. Well, obviously, you got to be in in space. I would, well, that game I just least. mentioned wasn't in space. Was it not a space game then? It was an alien planet. wasn't ours. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. So, if taking it a little step back, as long as it's off Earth or a good portion of the game takes place outside Earth's atmosphere, because like one space game I love is Kerbal Space Program, and you spend a lot of time on Kerbal's slash Earth's atmosphere, but the gist of the game is to get out of the atmosphere and explore the, the solar system. Right. You might even start on Earth, but the goal is to get off Earth. You know, you're building up your space program so you can finally launch, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay. Uh, Trap, something else that you think makes a... Are, is re is required in a space game? Hmm. Again, I think it would be conflict. Either, you know, man against self, man against others, man against environment. And it would, such as your survival game you just mentioned, that would be man against environment. You were on a different planet. You've been in space. You crash here. And so you're dealing with the, the effects of being trapped in an alien environment with very little backup. So that conflict has to be there. And it's of a science fiction theme. Again, aliens, alien environment, alien technology, um, celestial events like, oh, you're dealing with anomaly or you go through a black hole or whatever. So I would think that would be the other thing besides, well, you're out, you're out in space. I, there, there, would ha there needs to be that added conflict of some type. Okay. All right. Um, I myself think that there has to be unknown areas to explore that that don't obviously like, well, that's an urban area. I mean, it's like it's, it's not like a zombie game where you just walk around and, and you find, oh, there's a there's a 7-Eleven in the next block or there's a gas station over there. I mean, you're uh, uh, there's you know, you're going places where you 
that you may have no idea what's there until you get there, and uh, and whatever, and it will follow certain constraints because uh, I mean because space has certain constraints, things like no gravity, things like orbital mechanics, things like. Um, no atmosphere in most cases. Okay, so you know, but you may find all you may find things that you don't expect. So when you go from one uh, world to another, you know, you might have a world that has is surrounded by uh, a ring, and it might have, and there might be a really dangerous rock field that you have to avoid because it's there. And to me, a good space game, those things are real. They're not just you know. Matte painting in the background, and you know, so I think that if you can see it, you should be able to interact with it in some way, unless, of course, it's the far distant lights of, of stars far, far away. Okay, but anything that you can actually see, I think that you should be able to go to uh, and interact with in some fashion. Okay, back to you, Jonathan. Something else that you think is inevitably. Uh, part of a space game? Well, I think this is for me, but I freely admit that it it isn't a universal rule. Is I got to have a spaceship. I totally agree. Go on. Yeah, I don't know if it feels quite right to have a space game where you're just a Superman flying around without a spaceship. Or how about like Stargate, where you're going through a portal and you end up in another world? It's an alien world. Okay, it's you know it's not your world, but is it? Do you really feel like it's a space game if you are if you never get off the planet? Well, definitely not the first few seasons of Stargate, but towards the end. Well, but see, I myself in the in the in the first movie, okay, there was a spaceship. All right, it landed, it took off. You know, it it, it was like a big it was a big giant you know, uh, you know. Uh, pyramid but i mean still it was a ship of some kind so i i thought you got that that idea that there was space and i did like the fact that later on they got their own spaceships and such you know but yeah a, a game where you never got off the planet uh to me really wouldn't be a space game because that's i like going from you know from planet to planet to planet you know kind of thing so and that's and that's the way you do it Okay, unless you're playing some game where you have your own personal spaceship, you know, a la like, you know, Iron Man suit or something like that. And you're flying from world to world, you know, but uh, yeah, okay. Um, so spaceship. All right, Traff, you got something else? Hmm. Let's see. Space, conflict, spaceship. What was the other one you said, Bruce? Uh, unknown ali- uh, areas to explore. Hmm. Maybe the for space exploration, the fish out of water concept, and I think that might just be coming up with the part as part of my thing with conflict, man versus other cultures. So, can I can I re- restate it? There needs to be aliens. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and aliens don't have to be biologically different from us, but they can be, like, totally culturally different than us. 
Well, I mean, look at Star Trek. I mean, come on. Most of the aliens, even in the 60s, were just people with prosthetics on, and that was what made them different. I mean, 99% of the aliens in Star Trek, you know, had the ears or the ridges or the nose or scales or antennae. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's quite an uh, um, required. Well, if we go very general with alien and, and say that even just an alien dog or alien plant life, because I don't know if we necessarily have to have other intelligent aliens present. Um, because a few games I can think of. Um, the first one that comes to mind is uh, like Elite Dangerous didn't have any aliens for a long while. And I definitely call that a space game. I think EVE Online is pretty much devoid of aliens. Or okay, I've heard of that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, we're talking about things that we are saying we would, we really think should be in the game. Okay. It doesn't mean that, you know, if it doesn't have it, it's not a space game. It, it's just things that, like I said, we think are, you know, when you think of space games, these are the things that you think about, you know. And if you get like 90% of your, if you get nine out of 10, you still got a pretty good space game, probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. Yeah. Okay. Again, when designers make games, a lot of times they have to, you know, decide, you know, what they're going to do, you know, because, uh, you know, creating an entirely different alien race, that's a lot of work. Okay. And it's, and, and you know, you, the Star Trek route is basically put a bug on her nose and then create a kind of a offshoot cultural yeah. aliens, but they're not really aliens. You know, they're just like us <laughs> in most, in most cases. Okay. Uh, which is one of the reasons why they say that if you're trying to find aliens, the best place to look is on Earth in some of your fringe societies, you know, like your aboriginals or uh, even some of your, uh, you know, historically your... Uh... Oh, no, let's go there. It's the elephant in the room when we're talking original Star Trek, the damn space hippies. J- yeah. And Spock's there rocking out with the space hippies on the Vulcan heart. And uh, for Eden, yep, yeah. yay, brothers. Yep. <laughs> and Spock playing his lyre. Yep. And I mean, even back in the day, you know, I, I didn't get to see it first run. It was already in syndication. I was born in 69, so it ended a couple months after I was born. So, you know, I'm still a kid. And, you know, like 8, 9, 10, I'm watching this and Space Hippies. Really? Well, it's a product of the time and just, okay, go with it. Yeah. (laughs) But still, yeah, using a cultural example and use it and, and, you know, taking that kernel of the the mundane and adding the fantastic to it is enough to, you know, you go with it. And it would be the space hippies, or what was the other one? It was next gen, the genderless race that the one decided that they wanted to live as female, and so Riker was interacting with her because, well, he's Riker. But that would again, often, well, in a way, a space game. A lot of it, if you're dealing with alien cultures, uh, what's the term? Social commentary. Because if you're dealing with these alien cultures, you're having to, you're walking into their, you know, they got the home court advantage. You're again the fish out of water, so you're there having to deal with, okay, if we look at them the wrong way, are they going to cut our heads off? Because direct eye contact is, you know, 
a sign of aggression. So again, that's that conflict again. Okay. All right. Well, um, and then uh, for my additional thing would say, there's got to be tech. Oh, yeah. There's got to be futuristic, you know, weird science type tech. Whether it be transporters, whether it be AI, whether it be robots or um, projected holograms, or whether it be weird food, you know, uh, like uh, I just finished playing a game uh, called uh, Galaxy on Fire 2 HD, uh, which it was actually devised as a... uh, 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 iOS and uh, Android game. You play it on your phone, uh, and they had this thing called Vosk organs, which were very expensive and highly in demand. And I'm like, and, and you look at the picture of it, and it's it's a heart. It's like a big heart, and I'm like going, and there are races that are called Vosk, and I'm like going, are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> but that's not actually tech. That's just like weird food. But I mean, other but other things too, like nanobots or uh, or even like guns. I mean, you know, I play a game and it says, "Here's your missiles." Okay, here's your chain gun. Okay, here's your blaster. All right, now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, and some and, and some people actually make a big distinction. Uh, between the various types of weapons, you know, which I think is important. It's not just a matter of power; it's what they do. Okay, and um, and in FTL from TriTac, a blaster is a device that causes an explosion on the surface of the target. Did you know that? So it's almost like a reaction, like it's interacting with solid matter. Yeah, it's just somehow creating an explosion either by heating the air up, you know, focusing there and heating the air up and causing it to like expand real quickly with heat and 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 possibly some force. Yeah, like know. a pla- like a plasma okay. beam, yeah. Versus, you know, uh, a laser which is primarily a focused burning effect. Yeah. Okay. Versus a maser which is micro high you know, focused microwaves, which cook from the inside or disrupt electronics. Okay, so, you know, every time I play a space game or a science fiction game or something like that, I want a blaster or a laser or something like that. And if I have to carry a big old battery the size of a, you know, a day pack on my back to make it work, I will. Because when I played... Uh, when I played cyberspace, which doesn't take place in space, <laughs> um, I they had they had different charts for the different weapons, and right in the middle of my weapon chart was vaporizes the midsection of your target. See, that's what I'm talking about there. And that's yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I shoot him in the arm or I shot him in the head. Yeah, but I vaporize his whole midsection. <laughs> that's, you know, and and I, I love that stuff. So, you know, it, 
And if I get if I have a a, a, a ship uh, that has multiple hard points on it, one of them's going to be a laser, one of them's going to be a chain gun, one of them's going to be something else. Because when they fire, I want to see a whole thing going. On. I want to see like <laughs> you know, I want to see those circles of light, you know, going out like you know from. Uh, uh, like that one gun they had in Ultron, and of course the the high, you know, the the really high uh, pitch whoop sound from the laser, and and you know I want all that stuff. <laughs> just you know, firing them all together just usually isn't good enough, unless of course it, they're really awesome, in which case yeah, go for it. But uh, the uh, the one nice thing about lasers is 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 that lasers are norm unless you're playing a kind of a pulse type weapon. Lasers are fire and aim weapons, you know, and you just basically take, fire it, put it on your target, and wait for the ship to to explode. Because <laughs> you know you eat through the shields, and then it'll you know eat through the ship, and then finally it blows up. And and it's you know usually a little better than some of the uh, uh, other things where you're firing. Again, this is my opinion. Uh, some people just love you know, shooting at your target. Pieces of it are bursting into flames. Let's not talk about how there's flames in space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, galaxy on fire, too. Every time you damaged a ship, it was like, you know, a, a, a Fokker, you know, that got hit with, you know, f whose engine, you know, um, and um, oil you know, basically ruptured an oil line, and now smoke and fires is is burning out the side of the of the fuselage. Okay, instead of like what would normally happen, which would be you'd see nothing, you'd see nothing happening until finally it just went dark or it broke apart, and then you might see some fire because all the air would be you know providing the uh, from the inside would be providing air for the fire so you might see a little bit of fire as the air gusted out of holes you made in it oh no when i when when i saw star wars back in 77 and bruce you and i we rate as ogs because we were there you know old enough to be at the theater or the drive in i saw and, the theater yeah i drive in yeah for me my dad took me and my siblings and i'm sitting there and it was years later when it all hit about, wait a minute, there wouldn't be an explosion like that in space. There's no air. Son of a bitch. <laughs> and I'm, we're talking in my 20s, embarrassingly enough. I'm like, you know, is it, wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> well, everybody was talking about it in my group. They all, from the very first time they saw it, they said, well, it's a nice movie, but it's not very realistic. Well, there, there was um, uh, Mark Hamill talked about it because, you know, 40th anniversary was there on what it was, Seth Meyer. Okay. And when he read the chuck, when he read the script, he's like, who write? Because he didn't realize it was space opera. And it was the scene they were filming with the trash compactor. And oh, would, my. And when they first got out of it, and Mark Hamill even said, wait a minute, I just came out of this thing. So, shouldn't there be like schmutz in my hair? And Mark Hamill did a very good imitation of Harrison Ford going, kid, it's not that type of movie. If they're noticing this, they're seeing the wrong movie. Yeah, it's just the things like that, just, you know. Well, nobody should there have been schmutz in his hair. He was immersed in it. Well, yeah, it's probably schmutz yeah. all over, but still, he, he brought that up during yeah. filming. So, yeah. But no, um, with, with, yeah, with tech, you, you want the tech. You want the starships, you want the weapons, you want the, the, the 
space battles sometimes because you're going to deal with it. A space game, um, you know, exploration, you're still going to run up against some imperialistic culture. You know, Star Trek has the Klingons. Star Wars is the Empire. You know, Farscape, it's the Peacekeepers. And so you're going to want all that tech to go out there and not only to explore, but also defend yourself because you are going into the unknown. So you you kind of have to, if you're thinking that everybody's going to be nice and sweet, you know, when you go out there, no. So again, it's part of that conflict and you got to be ready for it. And just, we love our sci-fi tech. Yeah. Right. Because there's going to be people that just try to take advantage of you. I mean, you know, they, they see you going along. It's like, oh, I want that. Oh, and or, oh, look, fresh meat. Yeah. There's only been a couple games I played where the ships themselves were considered valuable, you know, and uh, and and you you and one of the things you could do was capture other ships. So we'll get into that when we start uh, going through our, as you put it, patented uh, Bruce Shepherd uh, outline. Yeah, outline. Okay, so let's go ahead and uh, and and start talking about the actual games themselves. Okay, so the first thing is is that. Uh, and, and again, these can be mixes, so we're not saying one thing or another, but uh, they can be narrative or it can be open world, okay? Uh, do you, you want to take a shot at describing the difference between the two? Yeah, I would say narrative is what John used to call a story verse. You are following a specific plot. You have to get from A to B with stops in between and you may, you know, side quest. But eventually you get back on the track to the story's conclusion. Open world? I like that one because that gives you freedom to do a whole bunch of stuff. And of course, for computer games, that's where things like downloadable content come in. Oh, you want to explore this sector? That's another 70 bucks. Yeah. But (laughs) it opens that universe up much more. Oh, no, don't get me started on the whole Steam thing. Trust me. Um but yeah, I if if you're looking to shut your mind off and go along for the ride narrative, but if you really want to binge play, open world would be better. I mean, in an, in a narrative game, you don't do anything unless you have a reason to do it as in somebody gives you a quest. You know, you says go go to this town and talk to this person. Okay, you might have some encounters on the way, but the fact is, is that once you deal with those encounters, there's nothing to do except keep moving along until you get to where you're supposed to go. All right. And, you know, um, and and then you get there, they give you quests. You might meet some people along the way who might give you some additional quests, but there's no, you know, usually in these kinds of things, there's no like, um, there's no like I'm just going. Uh, I'm going to just go and stop for the next year, and I'm going to fish because I just want that kind of life. And I'm going to meet people that come along the way and wave at them and stuff. A narrative game doesn't let you do that. A narrative game, you lose when that happens because there are other events that are transpiring in that universe, and if you don't, if you don't follow the narrative, you can't be the hero that they need. Okay, maybe not the hero they deserve, but certainly the hero that they need. Okay, and you're not going to, uh, you know, and unfortunately in some games, you know, 
some of the people that you need to meet are literally going to be waiting for you. If you did that, they'd literally be waiting for you a year later. <laughs> uh, but uh, there, I there have been a few games where I played where time actually passed in certain regards. Um, I was playing Fallout Four, and uh, I didn't do anything with the uh, Minuteman quest line. Okay, I was following the main quest line, and after I I did that, I came back and I'm talking to people, and they says, "Oh." Did you hear about so-and-so over at this farm? He says, they lost their daughter. They, their daughter got abducted and nobody saved her and she's dead. And I'm like, well, I always saved her when I did the Minuteman quest line. But because I didn't, they actually killed her off in the game because nobody rescued her. So that, you know, in a narrative game, you've got, you know, you, there are, there's going to be consequences if you don't do things, because the narrative is set up, and you're and if you and you're expected to follow it, uh, the game really and the, and the game constrains you a lot of times uh, that you can't do, you know uh, that if you don't follow the quest line, there's lots of things that you're literally not allowed to do, you know. So uh, in in an open world, it's. Uh, you know, theoretically, you can go anywhere, do anything, but that turns out not to be true either because, uh, and uh, we'll talk about that a little later because, you know, part of the quest line might be to make friends with certain people, and if you don't make friends with them, you can't cross the border into their space without getting attacked because they don't know who you are. They don't have any reason to trust you, like you, ally with you. Okay, there, there. Unless there's some mechanic to allow you to ally with them, uh, involved in the game, and I think there should be uh, in an open world, uh, you're going to find that you have a lot harder time uh, making the progress you might want to make in in a particular part of space because you literally are an outsider. So. But uh, the big advantage with it, uh, of an open world kind of thing is, is that you can choose how you wish to enter the narrative uh, because almost all open worlds also have some kind of narrative. Not all. I think um, the... Uh, uh, I don't know if uh, uh, Elite Dangerous has a narrative to it. Uh, I think open, uh, 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 No Man's Sky doesn't have a narrative to it either. It's literally you just going to a world and exploring it. Am I wrong? Do you get it's one of those narratives where it's it's very much you pick it up as you want to. So there is a story to it, but it's very much a you can interact with that story when and where you want, whenever you want. Okay. See, you know, uh, what I like to do in most games... Uh, whether it be computer games or tabletop games, uh, when you're playing board, you know, like tabletop board games, you pr you're really constrained because uh, almost everyone has a lot of goals you're supposed to follow. Okay, it's almost entirely narrative in that regard. But even in role-playing games, I'm always like, I want to build myself up to be, you know, the toughest I can be before I go out there and and, and start interacting with the things that are outside my immediate um, area, because 
even if it scales, you know, the GM scales it or the game scales it, the more stuff I have, the more options I have. So, for example, is, is that if I can get my spaceship uh, upgraded to the point where I have stealth generators where I can turn invisible, that's a big win for me, okay? If I, if I can go out into the ore fields and I can, uh, you know, harvest 100,000 million credits, whatever it might be, you know, so that we're, if I ever run into something that's valuable, I know I've got the money to buy it. Um, you know, you know, upgrading your ship to be faster, putting better shields on your ship, better armor, whatever it might be. Okay, uh, if you can do that before you leave your little, you know, slice of happiness that you call your your world, your your uh, local group or whatever, it all to me it always makes the rest of the game better. Now, some people. They just want to get out there and they say, oh, the game's going to give me whatever I need as I go along. And I'm always like, yeah, you're, tr- you're very trustworthy for the designers. You know, uh, it's especially, I think it's especially dangerous with computer games. Uh, now, in, in RPGs, you basically, you, you have an understanding with your GM. And, uh, and usually that work. if you want to play that kind of game first, the GM's willing, usually willing to do it. He'll give you a whole bunch of, he or she will give you a whole bunch of small requests, you know, kill the rats in the cellar, you know, go and uh, pan for gold, um, you know, uh, uh, go kill the marauding beasts that are threatening, you know, and the, you know, and and I'm, I'm I just put it in into D and D type terms, but it's the same thing happens in space. Okay, there's a local group of of uh, uh, of of pirates, and until you get tough enough, you can't take the pirate base. And until you can take the pirate base, they keep spawning more pirates. Okay, um, you you know you. I'm, I'm saying you go go and, uh, and 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 fix this space station, or go and and uh, rescue this uh, traveler that's that's adrift out in space for whatever you know. And you can improve, and you can decide because of that what kind of focus you want for your game, because most games they don't have ships that can do everything. I mean, elite, maybe not until very late in the game. They usually you I could either carry a lot of cargo, or I can carry a lot of hot guns, or I can carry uh, uh, you know other kinds of storage. Or something like that. You usually can't do everything, and so early on in the game, a lot of times you have to decide what's going to be your focus in this part of the game. So that that's where I say the, the narrative or whatever, and um, which kind of brings us to the next part, which is how do you, in a game, how do you resolve uh, these situations that come up? Okay, because uh, you know. Because there, there are two different ways I see of doing it in general. One is real time, and the other one is turn based. Okay, uh, uh, Jonathan, why don't you explain the difference between those two? It's really is like, can you pause time, or do you have to make decisions as 
quick as you can in order to have your best chance of success. Like real time is going to be, it's like I said, it's, it's real time. You might be able to slow it down or speed it up, but time is always progressing. Um, while with turn-based you have, you know, you take your, you, you put in your commands, you, you know, you say, I want to do this, this turn, you enter the turn, it processes, and then you have as much time as you want before you enter your next commands and for your next turn. Uh, definitely like a, a bit of disconnect, you know, it's like, I'm in the moment, I have to make decisions now versus chess. I get to think about it. I get to take a little bit more time to think about what I'm doing. Right. And almost all tabletop role-playing games, you know, even though they talk about them being, you know, more interactive because you, you're interacting with the other players, with the GM, they're still turn-based because you take your turn, then someone else takes a turn, then the, you know, the, uh, the NPCs take turns. So that's all turn-based. And uh, playing uh, a game where... If you you literally could be standing around doing nothing and somebody can kill you, <laughs> that's that's more common in computer type games because you've got you've got the game in the background generating events and things are happening even you know things are spawning things are happening even though time is moving you know especially if you have one of those games where you know ten ten minutes is an hour. You know, and and so you know, you you'll, you'll go through a couple of days, you know, just standing around. You know, you can see the sun come up and go down before you stop playing for the evening. Uh, so, the uh, the big advantage, of course, in real time is the fact that you uh, you can't you you do have to think on your feet, and you can't do everything. You know, uh, some game uh, some games handle that by using action points. Where they say, "Okay, you have ten action points, and this, you know, turning on these systems, or firing your guns, or uh, uh, warming, you know, uh, uh, moving, you know, or even communicating with other people takes a certain amount of actions. You can't launch your fighters this turn because you're using all your action points to shift right and fire on the enemy ship." So, and if you don't fire on the enemy ship, then he, that ship, you know, they, they might be able to bring more to bear on you next round. So you, a lot of times you have to be really have to decide which you think is your better route. You have to be economical with those action points. What am I going to do? What's going to give me the best results so I survive this? Yeah. Right. You know, and role-playing games do that by saying things like, well, you know, you have a, uh, in D and D, in in uh, third edition, they they had you, or actually it was fourth edition. You got a bonus action, you have a minor action, you have a movement action, and you have an uh, a, a normal action, which allows you to do various things. But you can't do everything all at once, which in first edition you could. Well, yeah, in pa- in in Pathfinder, you know, you have your stand. Well, what is it now? Swift, immediate, and free, and then you have move equivalent and standard. Then you have the full round action, and also you, um, in advanced players guide, they introduced hero points, kind of like the action points from a D twenty modern, where you can spend an action point and get a free move or standard action that round. 
So yeah, they they have something like that in Pathfinder too. It's right along the same system. Excuse me. So almost you know almost every system is, and especially um, um, uh, like say uh, uh, turn based games usually have some kind of action point thing where you can only do so much. You know now. Um, you know, some games, you know, they don't care. They're like, you can move as much as you want to move, you know, but you can, uh, uh, but you can only attack, you know, once this round. You know, to pick your targets. Unless, of course, you, you know, you've got a match thing and saying, okay, I can pick three targets because that's an ability I'm using. Bang, bang. I'm, I'm firing an automatic weapon so I can sweep, you know, and stuff like that. So it also depends on the gear you have. Some gear gives you more options. And it also matters... Whether you are yourself or whether you're, you know, part of a party or a fleet in the case of a space game, okay? So, uh, so uh, in the case of, a, of an individual, you literally, you know, unless you want to break reality, you know, any sense of, of verisimilitude, you know, a person can only do so much in a, a round, okay? But... Uh, if you have like six ships besides yours that are part that are that are al- allied with you, or you have six different people who are members of your crew all at different stations, all doing different things, then you can actually do a lot of things. Somebody can launch those uh, those attack shuttles. Somebody can um, uh, switch the uh, power from the uh, uh, from propulsion over to shields. While someone else is the gunner, and someone else can be hacking at the same time. Yeah, they they have they have that in Starfinder now. There because I have books that merge Pathfinder and Starfinder, where you can use the ship combat rules in a Pathfinder game. And how Starfinder does it now, you have gunner, engineering, helm, captain, science officers that do all the sensor and computer stuff. Uh, first aid, which, or not first aid, first mate, which kind of helps everybody. And because it's Starfinder, you even have a magic officer where they can, if they're like a, a, a wizard or a cleric or whatnot, or a t- what is it, Solarians or Technomancers, they can tweak magic to give you little boosts in combat. So yeah, the position thing, usually it's for individual, you know, each character at the table well, I'm the captain, so I get to tell you all what to do. You're helm, so you're the one that's going to fly us. You shoot, you scan, you know, you fix. And yeah, it, it's the bridge crew example that you use. Starfinder uses that. And I've used it. It actually works out very well. Okay. Uh, but, uh, Jonathan, why don't you talk about how you can use a fleet? So usually with fleets, it's sort of the understanding that you're controlling either everybody in your fleet, whether that's every pilot of every ship in your fleet, or you're giving them general orders and it's AIs running them, but you can still take control. Usually depending it's, it, of course it varies, but usually it's, it's the idea that you are the commander of multiple ships and while the amount of d- direct control you have may vary, it's not just you are this person. Okay, well, what's what's some of the options you can do with these uh, these ships? 
but that allows you to do things like you could you could have that perfect flanking strategy and and bait and switch type uh, strategies if you're in combat. I'm not sure what a bait and switch strategy is in combat. Like um, having one set of ships look really weak and and prone to attack as as a bait for your for your enemy, and then just as they're about to take the bait, you bring in the the, the big guns. Okay. So you could, you know, you could take your smallest, weakest ships, but you could put really good engines in them, so that when they 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 was uh, they get gain aggro, then they just turn around, they run back to where the big battle cruisers are, and and when the enemy ships come into range, they get they hammer get to hammer them. Yeah. Okay. All right. Some of the things you can do is is that um, in let's say in in a perfect. A game, you'd be able to say, well, these ships are going to stay close. You know, they're going to be more defensive. They're protecting me, or they're protecting these larger units that don't move very fast, okay? But you'll have other ships that are range further, you know, and their job is to, uh, is to take uh, opportunistic attacks, or maybe they just maybe they spread out your um, uh, your view screen. You know, maybe the further the ships go out away from your ship, the more you can actually see the fog of war, as they call it, fades away further because you've got eyes. You know, somebody to send that, that intelligence back to you, the commander. So, um, and these don't have to be uh, like real ships. I mean, these can be drones. These can be, um, you know, robotic-type ships. They don't have to have crews on them. In some games, uh, or other players are playing other ships, and so therefore they're in the same position you are. They're just doing it through a multiplayer-type uh, environment. Uh, the other members of your crew are more or less like items, okay, that you that you can uh, you can get. You, you, you gain them through, um, you know, uh, going to various locations and picking the one you think is best, and each one of them has certain things that they bring to the ship as a result. So they might increase, you know, like a good uh, engineer might increase the uh, the regeneration rate on the shields, or might you might be it might coax a bit more speed out of the ship and it might you know go a little faster or it might improve efficiency and you might you know not spend as much fuel or uh, it might not cost you as much as far as energy is concerned somebody who is a uh, a comm officer uh, might be able to uh, you know your sensors might work better might have better discrimination on the objects that you see okay uh, someone who's a computer programmer might be able to increase the efficiency of of the syn- um, synchronization of your drones and other things, and just increase your overall uh, success, you know, uh, uh, rate of, of 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 your ship movements against another ship, uh, set of ships. Okay, and they can be the hackers, the ones who can hack. Other ships, they can, well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but, you know, they, they can do all the things that a hacker can do. Um, and which doesn't mean that you yourself as the captain can't do all these things, but they improve. You know, some, in some games you can't. If you don't have one, you can't do it. 
Okay, but in other games, you can do all these things, uh, but they, uh, again, they either they take action points, so you can't do everything else, or they just improve your efficiency on these types of things. Uh, so uh, it's always good, you know, and, and especially the person in communications, you know, might be allow you to understand somebody that you're d talking to. So if you're in one of those games where, uh, depending upon your level of skill, they just basically eliminate words of, of what they're saying to you. You get like every third word, but with a good comm officer, you might get every second word. And that's a big improvement <laughs> if you've ever played those kinds of games. Or, even more important, there might be shades of meaning that they bring across where you know you don't realize that what you think is an insult is actually a uh, flirtation. See, that's what I brought up earlier about conflict man versus alien, where you're going out in the unknown and, you know, again, you know, it's the old saying, don't show your teeth when you smile. It's a sign of aggression. Right. Well, in this culture, showing your teeth, you know, is a sign of friendship because you're showing that you're an equal to, you know, this carnivorous race. And yes, my teeth are as good as yours. We shall feast together. So, yeah, right. you know, you got to know languages and a good person either. What, what's the term? Um, enterprise. Sato. Xenolinguist or a good communications officer will do wonders with that. Yeah, I was trying to find the term here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, me at a loss for words. Go figure. Um, yeah. You hush. Next Next topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and and it really and it really can make a difference, you know. Like for example, uh, in uh, in in Fallout, okay, a lot of times they give you these really aggressive statements that you can make. You can like really just insult people, and uh, when they do it right, sometimes when you insult them, they like you better that if you're always the peacemaker, you're always the uh, conciliatory type character, I'm always the good character, sometimes, you know, they you run into somebody who's, you know, a, very aggressive, they want you to show strength. So, uh, and, and usually insults are one of the safer ways of doing that versus like taking a pot shot at somebody. Again, I've had relationships like that where, you know, <laughs> snark and banter is what kept me going. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and I'm saying a lot, and some games do that. They actually, uh, and like in a role-playing game, you can actually, uh, you know, that can be part of the game where the, you know, the GM decides this race, uh, you know, good friends insult each other all the time, you know. If they're if they're if they don't like you or if they're wary of you, then they're very formal and polite. So, the uh, uh, the more uh, the more bantering you are, the more likely you are to uh, get them to say and and the uh, uh, and, and you know and, and the, uh, the the square the triangle head alien you know uh, cracks. Cracks a smile vertically, <laughs> or something like that, because you have something you do, or you know, uh, if you do, a, if you if you tell a joke, uh, or a bad joke, you know, I mean, I've seen all kinds of games that let you do various things where you you could actually tell a joke, 
uh, as part of the game. And it actually had an effect. As far as um, being angry at, at, um, at being angry and belligerent as a way of conduct, I'm reminded of the Next Gen episode where, I forget the name of the race, it was another one of those human with prosthetic races, and he came up and got in Wesley's face, and Wesley just jumped right back in his crap, and the people that were there were just like, oh my God, Wesley, what did you do? And he's like, oh, it's this type of race. That's how they interact. You have to get in their face in order for them to back down. Yeah, so as soon as you were talking about insulting, getting you somewhere, I was reminded of that scene. It was like first or second next-gen season. So, And, the, you know, on the other hand, you know, some races want to be wooed. So you come in and you... Uh, uh, and 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 you're not polite, then of course then they don't want anything to do with you. You know the the so-called aesthetic races like elves and Vulcans and such, they tend to not react positively to aggression. But Klingons love it. Oh well, um, did you guys see Battlefield Earth? And it's okay, you can admit it here. We're among friends. Yes. Okay. I haven't actually. Oh. Oh, it's been okay. a long time though. So, okay. Also, did you read the book? No. Granted, it was a thousand nine. It was a thousand eighty-eight pages. It's considered yes, the longest. Yeah. Well, I slogged through. I read the stand, and I said, "I I've read Dostoevsky. I've read the stand. I said I'm kind of done with big slabs of books unless it's really compelling." Well, the <laughs> the um. Okay, this would have been had Battlefield Earth not horribly bombed and had a record enough record number of Razzie Awards. The second half of the book would have been the sequel, where, okay, the humans destroyed Cyclo, and there are now 11, 12, 13, possibly more races all wanting to come to Earth to wipe them out because, wait a minute, this is a this is a a animalistic race that because they were taught by the cyclos and their um, their their hubris, thinking, "Oh, we'll teach them; they can't beat us." And now we have the this this little pissant planet called Earth that destroyed the cyclos. We're going to take them out because if they destroy the cyclos, they'll wipe us out. So, oh, and I th- actually I think it was more like fifty races. So basically, this multi-race armada comes around Earth, and Johnny Goodboy Taylor, played by Barry Pepper in the first movie. He goes, because, you know, they got ships now, they can fly around. He goes to China, and he learns diplomacy from the direct descendant of the last Castellan of the last Chinese emperor. So he's there in the Chinese robes, and his hair's all brushed out. And he is having to, and remember, if you saw the movie, the humans were all savages. They're all in furs, and, you know, society devolved. And here he is now, he's having to be this courtier, this diplomat, because he has to deal with these races to keep them from turning Earth into a floating <laughs> rock pile. So yeah, he had to learn diplomacy because he was dealing with all these alien races that basically were afraid of them. Showing, no, no, we're nice. We just had to, you know, we're trying to save our world. We don't want to destroy anybody else. And so he was taught probably 17th, 18th, 19th century Chinese etiquette to basically keep from, you know, getting orbital bombardment from 50 different races. So, yeah, 
there are times where etiquette with alien races is mandatory. And that is why you need a good, um, like a xenoarchaeologist, xenoanthropologist, um, who knows of cultures and can pick up on things. And if you meet these people, you ask them, okay, what are you picking up from these people? How do we go on from here? And, you know, that's why you had Council of Troy there on Next Gen, why you had Daniel Jackson in the Stargate series where, you know, he could pick out, well, Jack, this is a warrior culture. You have to, you know. So, yeah, often if you're going to deal with these other races, you're going to need someone that can understand both language, nuance, culture, in all its various forms. It's like um, in Star Wars, Grand Admiral Thrawn. How did he? How did he end up getting to being an admiral, even though he was of the Chiss race? Because he studied their culture. If they were a peaceful culture, and there he studied their art. If all of their art was nice, flowing, curved things, they were more of a peaceful culture. If you saw one of their statues and it was a warrior in the midst of strike, he knew he'd have to bring out the stormtroopers and the tie fighters. So when you're out in space, knowing how to deal with cultures is probably one of the things that will either get you an ally or get you killed. And with those examples there, I think that that those are the ones that I know of that, that come to mind. Yeah, I mean, any others, Mike, as far as dealing with other races, cultures, whatnot? No, uh, I uh, I really hadn't put. I'm glad you talked about that because I hadn't put that much thought into the various nuances of negotiation. Well, yeah, and that and as I said, that's that whole man versus other races part of that conflict where you're going to need either Xenoarch or even just a universal translator that after a while syntax gets picked up and you know you can try to talk then, but even then you still can't use idioms like you know get lost. And the alien race goes, this is my world. I know everywhere about this. Yeah, how can I get lost? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is my sensors or my sensor array is fully functional. What are you? Why would that happen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or or in the worst case scenario, are you suggesting that I suffer a brain injury and lose my memory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, no, 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 no. It's not what I meant. Well, look at all the times that our president, because they didn't have good foreign uh foreign consultants on culture, all the gaffes that the presidents over the past 20 years did. I think one, the elder Bush did the peace sign and he got off the airport in Australia. And that was to them, the middle finger. Yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah, right. And I'm not getting political. He did that. And it's just, he didn't have people telling him, uh, you don't do that. That, That's not a good thing. Yeah. And I've been told that, uh, you know, Single finger is a problem. Two fingers is a, can be a bigger problem. So most in Disney World, they use three fingers when they point at things. Ah, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like it's over the, there. The three, yeah. yeah, the three primaries, or they'll or they'll use the whole hand. Yeah. Okay. All right. I get that. Yeah. This is Bruce Sheffer saying. There are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. 
It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.